3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. It's 7am on Tuesday the 18th of April 2023. My name is Fung and joining me in the studio this morning we've got Carnegie and Ashkin. Good morning. 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 How has everyone been? Very well. Yeah. Sleepy, but in a good way. Sleepy, (laughs) sleepy, but in a good way. Tell us more. Just like content coming out of uni break. And so, yeah, it's nice to start the week again and getting back into the news and like waking up and staying on topic and what's current, what's happening. (laughs) Is that the same for you, Carnegie? Um, uh, Well, yeah, in lots of ways. Um, But I've got a little newborn at home, so... Mostly just um, getting to know her as a person. Yeah, and it's how's amazing. that been? Yeah, great. She's very um, cute and has a lot of moods and feelings. Yeah. So it's fun hanging out. Yeah, it must mm. be so exciting mm. to see just a person, like, yeah, become a person no, in, so fr- in front of your eyes. I, I don't know, know how else to describe it. It's exactly what it is. It's um, surreal. Mm. Mm. Oh, I love, let's have more baby <laughs> updates, please. <laughs> you should get her on, on air. Oh, of course. She has a few things to say. I yeah, uh, yeah, I imagine she, she would have. <laughs> um, okay, so what have we got coming up on today's show? Yeah, so these are your news headlines for Tuesday Breakfast. The state government departments have announced plans to cut their public sector budgets by 10%. This will hit community health organisations and sack more than 5,000 public sector workers. This comes as the government struggles to offset a multi-billion dollar financial hit linked to the rising interest rates and with the state's net debt topping $100 billion. This also occurs as Albanese plans to spend $368 billion of taxpayers' money on nuclear submarines in the coming decades. Fret not, with struggle, there's always an opportunity to fight back, and the fight for workers' rights are back on the agenda as NTEU fights for teachers' and staff rights against management cost-cutting during a cost-of-living crisis. Casualization at universities have attacked the well-being and the quality of education provided to students and for staff leading to systemic wage theft in the sector. This is primarily due to insufficient allocation of paid time for casual and sessional staff to mark essays, advise students and prepare for the courses. Casual staff at the University of Melbourne have had $45 million of their wages stolen by the university, and now staff have taken industrial action just last Friday after management failed to meet key demands. Cool things are happening, like staff banning penalties for late submission of student work, which makes me kind of want to 
study at uni melbourne right now staff calling for an increase of secure work at the university and demanding a pay rise of 15 percent when the uni only offered four percent pay rise which is well below inflation just yesterday in most recent round of deakin university nteu negotiations management had proposed a three percent salary increase per year for only three years representing a real pay cut with inflation at 7.8 percent they have not proposed a meaningful solution to reduce casual employment nor to reduce academic workloads. The union is demanding a 15% salary increase over the life of the next enterprise agreement. We'll be chatting to Dr. Piper Rod, a researcher and lecturer at Deakin University, later this show on this issue as well. In lighter news, Year and Boy 2023 is happening soon, a 10-day festival featuring more than 300 First Nations creatives taking over Nam alleyways, streets and spaces from May 4th to 14th. Our host Kanagi will be chatting to the creative lead of Year and Boy, Shireen Stewart, for today's show, so stay tuned. Speaking of celebrations, Eid Mubarak, or in my mother tongue, Salamat Hari Raya, Aidil Fitri. This Saturday, on April 22nd, millions of Muslims from across the globe in Pakistan, Indonesia, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Libya, Kenya, and so-called Australia will be celebrating and breaking their month-long Ramadan day fasting with a celebratory feast. Ramadan is a period where Muslims abstain from their most basic needs and desires to discipline oneself and focus on the connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Throughout the past few weeks, you may have noticed your Muslim friends fasting, abstaining from consuming food or beverages, yes, including water. This practice is considered one of the five pillars of Islam, the others being shahada, which is a declaration of faith, salah, which is prayer, zakat, which is donations, and hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca. Make sure to wish your Muslim friends a happy Eid and that's all for the news headlines today. Got a really cool show happening. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for that Ashkin. Um, so let's give you all a rundown on uh, who we'll be speaking to this morning. Kane, do you want to start us off? Sure, so at 7.15 um, we'll be speaking with Dr. Piper Rod, uh, who is the branch president at um, Deakin's NTEU branch about what's going on there, um, the recent non-union ballot, working conditions for staff, and what's um, on the cards for them next. And Ashkin at 730 at 7.30, we'll be having a little recap of uh, a show from the Solidarity Breakfast, uh, hosted by Annie McLaughlin, about no bulletins in Benalla. And it's about, um, we're going to have Zelda Grimshaw as a guest speaking about the successful blockading um, at a bullet factory um, to denounce uh, imperialism and war intentions rising and to stop profiteering from women's, weapons manufacturing companies. So that's really awesome. That's going to be happening soon. And then at 7.40, we'll be speaking with Shireen Stewart, who is the creative lead for Yurimboy, uh, which is a 10-day festival um, platforming First Nations creatives happening next month. So excited to hear what's on for that. 
And then at 8 o'clock, we'll be joined by Judith, who you may know as a fellow 3CR producer and presenter, uh, who's currently attending the 2023 Harm Reduction International Conference, which is being held here in Nam. And uh, the theme for this year's conference is Strength in Solidarity. So Judith will be joining us on the show this morning to talk to us about some of the issues that have been raised at this conference and uh, what is to come uh, in today's schedule and also tomorrow's program as well. And then finally, we'll be joined by Dina, who is the founder of TB Access, uh, which is a um, consulting organisation that helps to create accessible and inclusive live music and entertainment um, events. And uh, she'll also be speaking to us about Groove Tunes, which is a fully accessible event, which is happening uh, at the Corner Hotel on the 3rd of June. So a really big show today. Uh, We'll be back with a song right after this. From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to kick off this morning with um, one of my favourite songs at this moment. It is by K-pop band New Jeans, and it's um, a really, really great remix um, by Hongi, and this is Oh My God. I'm not 
Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Are... 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au That song that you just listened to was the Oh My God, New Jeans bootleg kind of remix by Hongi. And that was a song that was uh, requested and recommended by Carnegie, our host. Speaking of which, Carnegie is going to be speaking to NTEU... Uh, Yes, member and deacon, lecturer and researcher and going to tell us um, all about the industrial action that's happening in Deakin. All right, so Dr. Piper Rod <coughs> is a researcher and lecturer at Deakin University as well as the branch president for NTEU's Deakin branch. Piper is joining us on the show this morning to talk to us about the working conditions for staff at Deakin and management's recent decision to walk away from negotiations with the NTEU. Welcome to the show, Piper. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So um, maybe just to start with, uh, could you talk to our listeners a little bit about what's been happening at Deakin? Um, as I just mentioned, management has walked away from negotiations with the NTEU to better staff conditions for the next EBA, which just happened last Friday. Can you just tell our listeners a bit about how this happened? Yeah, sure. Uh, so we've been um, in negotiations uh, since about November last year. Um, and uh, we um, have been making very little progress in, in is the simplest way to kind of characterize uh, what's been happening. Um, and by that I mean that everything 
the union has put on the bargaining table for um, serious consideration and discussion, um, Deakin's management has essentially um, ignored and um, told us repeatedly that uh, it's not possible to uh, to take into account the the claims that our members have um, have come up with, um, which are the things that uh, that the the workforce at Deakin um, considers to be the most important changes that they want made to improve their working conditions and pay. Um, so it, it, it's been, I guess, quite a frustrating process. Uh, where we've kind of felt for a while um, concerned that we weren't being taken seriously um, mm. and our members weren't being taken seriously. Uh, and um, so when the university decided to sort of sidestep the union completely a few weeks ago and um, present uh, everybody in the, the university with their completed version of uh, a new EA that includes nothing that we have put on the table. Um, yeah, we, we were, uh, I guess, not really entirely surprised, but pretty um, pretty upset about it because it represents um, quite a concerning move by the university to, uh, to really um, disregard the union, which is the representative body of the of, of all the university workers, academic, professional staff, casuals, um, and instead just do whatever they want to do. Well, exactly. And um, two of the main issues that I think staff have been fighting for, not only at Deakin, but I think even broadly across the higher education sector, um, one is the decasualization of staff. There's been a huge uptake in hiring casual staff, um, which has resulted in a lack of job security um, and as well as pay rises. Both issues obviously made far more prevalent after the pandemic and, um, you know, with the cost of living rapidly rising and the rental crisis. Um, you know, can you tell us a bit about what it's been like for staff um, battling these issues, you know, for a while now? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the point you make about decasualization is a massive one. I mean, I can't, um, I can't overstate how, as you say, um, the universities, not just Deakin, but universities across Australia, certainly on the back of um, the pandemic, Deakin um, decided to, um, to fire a lot of their workforce. There were massive redundancies. What we've seen on the back of that in the recent years is, of course, an increase in um, reliance on precariously employed workers. Uh, and so one of the, the most important things that we've um, sought to improve in the EA is um, we want uh, an actual um, legislated target, a, a codified target in the EA that stipulates um, that X number of casual conversions, we were going for 150, um, were, uh, were uh, the university was committed to actually converting um, long-term casuals into um, ongoing academic jobs where they, people would have uh, not only security to know how they were going to pay the rent and put food on the table kind of semester to semester and month to month and year to year, but 
to actually have the ability to um, to to have to believe that they had the, a career that they could really invest in and feel proud of. Um, and universities, of course, rely, as you say, on increasingly um, casualized labor, and they reap the benefits. Casuals pe- publish, they do all the teaching. Um, they're the workforce that the vast majority of the community uh, thinks about um, when they, uh, you know, when they when they in- encounter a university. I mean, it, it, it's it, it's appalling how um, how badly universities have been treating um, their casual workers. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, as I said, it's been across the sector. Do you think this has something to do with universities taking on a sort of more corporate management style, with um, you know, overpaid management at the top and um, professional and academic staff being less of a priority? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I think in, in the simplest terms, yes. I mean, what we've seen in the university sector is um, I, I would describe as as a massive sort of disconnect between those who run um, universities um, and those who actually do the day-to-day work that, again, you know, your average person would consider the the bread and butter of a university, teaching and research, um, student administration, all of those things. Um, And yet we have people who are running universities, you know, highly, highly paid executives. I mean, our vice chancellor makes much more than our prime minister um, and yeah that that essentially are kind of completely isolated from those who who do the real work and I mean we've had the experience consistently in our union uh, and certainly this is, has um, been evidenced in bargaining where we raise issues that Every day, our, our hundreds of members come to us and tell us about the working conditions, and management has become increasingly hostile to to even being um, being told that um, that you know workers are being overworked and feel um, precarious. Um, they feel vulnerable, um, and such a kind of chasm of. Um, you know, I, I guess corporate cultural disconnect exists that it, you know that um, they just get ignored, and and I think I think there is a great deal of discontent and distrust that kind of engendered um, because of the ways that universities have been run. Absolutely. And, you know, that's quite understandable given that, you know, the union and all its members and, and the staff and, the, you know, staff at Deakin have taken um, real concerns to management in good faith for bargaining. And they've just walked away from the table on Friday. Um, the NTU is, of course, asking staff to vote no to management's proposition so that you can keep fighting for better working conditions. Can you tell us what the next steps are for the NTU at Deakin? Mm, yeah. Um, so we, um, the university has put out what we would call a non-union ballot, and that simply means that, um, as, as I said before, the, the university has chosen to... Um, not continue to bargain with the union as is um, standard practice in a unionized workplace um, and instead just 
um, put their own claims um, to uh, all workers to vote. Um, so what happens is that uh, every single university worker, uh, regardless of um, their their status, um, it has the right to vote for this EA. Um, so now what we are doing as a union is um, doing a lot of actions and activism to um, educate people about why this process is really dangerous for um, for you know, maintaining the democracy of, of the university. And, uh, and you know, if we want to improve uh, workers' conditions and pay, um, we need to get back to the bargaining table. And the only way to do that is to get enough people to vote no for this proposed EA that shuts the union out. Um, so we'll be doing call banking, um, trying to reach all uh, workers across the university. Um, and our position is really quite clear. Um, it, 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 we don't care if you're a union member or not. We represent all workers at the university. And we, um, we understand very strongly that this is not a good deal. Um, uh, and a good deal is not one that the union... Um, that you know represents you know and hears directly from its members, um, you know, it seeks to advocate for, and um, so we'll be, you know, we'll be getting out. Uh, we're having a um, a day of action on Friday um, across campuses um, to uh, to raise awareness and reach as many people as possible. It'll be a stop work action, um, and. Uh, we're having um, information meetings for everyone's invited. Um, we we uh, are agnostic about extending our message um, beyond um, simply our membership because we think this is too important um, to keep it to keep it in house. We've been um, seeking to communicate with all staff uh, about the reasons we think this is a really dangerous move and a wholly inadequate pay and um, and conditions offer that's on the table. Um, so we'll keep doing that um, through the week and the poll opens uh, next Monday. Um, so we'll be working hard for the next two weeks. That sounds um, incredible. Uh, how can other unions at other universities help support Deakin staff um, you know, this is obviously a prevalent issue, so I think um, it's a really great idea for solidarity across the sector amongst university staff. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I mean, I guess the, the most important thing that we've been telling everybody um, so far is we just need to get get the word out. So any way that we can do that, um, I would um, encourage people... Um, if you know anyone who is a student or um, a staff member at Deakin, um, please um, spread the word that they need to vote no, so that we can, we can get back to the to the bargaining table. We want to keep negotiating, um, and the only way to do that is um, to vote this um, this wholly inadequate and um, anti-democratic deal down. Um, so you know, please. Spread the word um, in any way you can. Um, support our social media, for instance, uh, and reach out um, 
to uh, either the the NTU um, in the Victorian Division or um, to Deakin to our branch. We have a website. Um, you you can look that up, um, and you're very welcome to um, to get involved and reach out to us. That would be most welcome. Amazing. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this morning, Piper. But really appreciate you joining us on the show this morning and talking us through what's going on at Deakin. Um, also, good luck with the action on Friday across campuses as well. Thank you very much. So that was Dr. Piper Rod, who is the branch president for uh, the NTEU's Deakin branch, talking to us about the non-union ballot at Deakin, which they're encouraging all staff to vote no for so that the union can keep fighting for better working conditions. To know more about this and to keep up with what's happening there, you can follow them on Deakin NTEU on Twitter. So it's up to us. The people, we need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Next up, we're going to be playing a bit of a recap from Saturday's show of Solidarity Breakfast. And Annie caught up with Zelda Grimshaw from Wage Peace. Well, Wage Peace fights to run strong campaigns against war, imperialism and militarism in so-called Australia after the successful blockading of NIOH. NIOA Bullet Factory and the Thales Mortar and Shells operation at a plant outside of Benalla. Let's cut to the track and see what this is all about. Can you give my listeners a little bit of a rundown of what you've been doing this week? Yeah, so on Tuesday morning we put a barricade up outside the Bullet Factory at Benalla. Um, it's a company, it's owned by the Defence Department, but they lease it to two private companies, Naya, who manufacture bullets for Australian police, and Talas, who manufacture a whole lot of munitions there, um, including some that they export to Indonesia who use them in West Papua. That's right. And uh, so there were about, you were, had about 25 compatriots and you set up a barricade and successfully stopped the shift, uh, the worker shifts going in, didn't you? We did. We actually stopped two shifts going in. So no bullets made in the factory that day. 
um, we set up quite a hard um, barricade with a, um, like a wrecked vehicle. So we had a, a vehicle that we placed in front of their gate. We locked their gate and then chained our wrecked vehicle to the gate. So, um, yeah, there was definitely no, no cars going in or out of the factory that day. And then watched as the early morning workers just turned around and had a day off. <laughs> so tell us, um, what's been the response of the police? Well, it was curious um, that police didn't even talk to us. So the police turned up uh, fairly quickly. And I mean, I guess I expected the barricade to be down within an hour. Um but the police didn't even approach us and talked to the Defence Department guys who'd come out to, you know, keep an eye on us um, and hung around for half an hour or so. Our liaison person spoke to them and said, oh, you know, you don't really need to be here. This is, you know, we're peaceful people and no one's going to get hurt here. So I'm sure you're busy and you've got other things to do. <laughs> Um, but I mean, we've said that to police before at at, um, at actions, and that hasn't uh, hasn't sent them on their way. But this time it did. They left, and most of the day there were no police even present. Um, so much later, and we we ended up holding the space for nine hours. So we held this barricade for nine hours. Uh, so yeah, very curious that um, I mean we we think that weapons companies don't want arrest. Um, because these companies function in our communities by people not knowing that they're there, and um, they, yeah, it's not, it's not about preserving their brand name or their good reputation. It's about no one knowing that they're there, um, because if people become aware that you know, there's a bullet factory, um, you know, there is no social license for weapons manufacturers. There's not nobody who thinks. Oh yeah, that's a good industry to have. <laughs> mm. uh, there's been this um, ongoing uh, infiltration of uh, Australian manufacturing and moving it towards uh, we weapons production, hasn't there? Like you say, in an insidious way. Yeah. So, I mean, under Turnbull, um, they decided they were going to give an extra, almost three hundred billion dollars to weapon to boost the weapons manufacturing industry. Um, they talk about it as, you know, sovereign capability, which means, you know, I think manufacturing weapons in Australia is what that translates to. Um, but what it, um, what it really means is that our money um, is going into the hands of private weapons corporations, usually big US corporations. So, you know, Lockheed Martin, um, Boeing, Raytheon, all the General Dynamics, all the big ones, um, get our money uh, to help them make weapons in Australia. And, you know, they're happy. They're getting taxpayer money. Yay. Um, and for us, it's just a loss in every single direction. So it's, it's a loss in terms of democracy because um, weapons corporations are gaining more and more power over governance, over, like, they're, they're basically direct defence policy now. They, you know, with through their lobbyists and through their think tanks and whatever... Like the people who write the defence paper, the defence, you know, white paper that becomes policy, are, are weapons company personnel. Like that's who they basically design our defence policy. So there's a loss of democracy. There's a loss of money from our economy. I mean, 
$270 billion over 10 years going into the hands of private weapons corporations, but also um, now $368 billion going to a UK company, BAE, to make nuclear submarines that will be obsolete by the time we get them. So, I mean, the loss of money is just immense, like, Mm. Thales, I mean, Thales is an interesting company too because it's French and I mean it's associated with uh, various uh, like uh, one of the the people that are to do with universities I mean quite quite besides the American companies and their infiltration of Melbourne University and then there's Sydney University I think the uh, Vice Chancellor of um, Sydney University is associated with Thales um, it's a French company and it, it's it's not just bullets is it with Thales no, so Talis are making um, a bunch Ta- of... Is that how you say it? Talis? I think so. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I think so. I think it's Talis. Talis. So the the yeah. Vice-Chancellor of Sydney University, I think is the president of the board of, of Talis. Yeah, um, right. There, there you go. Yeah. yeah, and RMIT has Albert and Melbourne Uni has um, Lockheed Martin and University of Queensland has Boeing. So, yeah, this this is another way that the weapons companies are kind of, you know, insinuating themselves into our public institutions. Um, They're also in high schools. Yeah. Yeah. So Thales is a French billion, multi-billion dollar um, company who have been supplying the Indonesian Navy for 40 years. So a lot of the naval guns um, in in Indonesia are, are Thales guns. Um, so people might recall the Biak massacre in 1998 when naval ships opened fire on um, an assembly of a couple of hundred people on the island of Biak in West Papua. Um, so those would have been Thales guns. Um, and they also make, you know, a series of kind of explosive projectiles um, so Tyler's rockets were found in a village in the highlands of West Papua about a year ago. There, was a, there were a number of helicopter attacks on villages in, in the highlands, um, firing, you know, these rockets that explode. I mean, they're sort of like small missiles. Um, and some of them didn't explode, and there's a photograph of a child holding one of the mm. unexploded missiles, and that's how we were able to identify that this... This was a Thales bomb. Um, so our action on Tuesday was in solidarity with folks in West Papua. So our friends in Papua knew we were taking the action. They knew we were there and they were pretty pleased about it. Um, and the other solidarity um, uh, angle was with the elders of Yundamu who were calling for there to be no police guns. So that was our major call at this at this section was disarm police. Um, they don't need guns, and um, and Naya are there making bank every time there's an, a police shooting. Is there um, ways people can um, uh, help out with your campaign? Because this is only one step in the um, the campaign, isn't it? True. Yeah. So we're called Wage Peace, <coughs> but I mean. Uh, reaching out via our website or our social media is the best way to contact us. We do run public events um, from time to time, so come along to one of those and let us know that you're keen. Um, otherwise, you know, take action in your own area. 
there are weapons companies all over Australia in hiding in our suburbs, and um, and they're all up to no good. I mean, they take our money and then they make weapons that are going to be used against us. So it's yeah, it's just a loss in every direction. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Zelda. That was Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast interviewing Zelda Grimshaw from Wage Peace. The organisation currently campaigns to stop the weapons industry, demilitarise education, peace in Papua and more. To keep updated, head to their website www.wagepeaceau.org slash about Dash wage dash peace flash. <laughs> All right, so we've got Kanagi next, and we've got an epic interview. Did you want to chat about this? Sure. So next up, we've got on the line Shireen Stewart. Uh, Shireen is a Tangurung Filipino woman, curator, and artist living and working on Bunurung and Boiburung country. Shireen is the creative lead for Yerumboy, a 10-day festival that platforms the interconnectedness and diversity of First Nations creatives locally nationally and internationally. Shireen is on the show this morning to tell us what we can expect from Yerumboy's fourth iteration happening in May this year. Welcome to the show, Shireen. Hi, Shireen, are you there? Hello. Hi, welcome to the Hi, show. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Um, so let's just jump into Yerumboy and what, what it means. Um, can you tell us what the name of the festival means and whether that has a significance? Absolutely. So Yurumboi means tomorrow in the local languages of the Bunwarang and Woiwurrung people. So we were kindly gifted um, to utilise, you know, that language word for the festival back in its first iteration in 2017. And that's really the foundations of what we do at Yurumboi. It's, it's, you know, pushing boundaries and shifting the paradigm and showing, you know, our community that... Um, Tomorrow is important and, you know, we really look to a black-led future. That sounds incredible. Uh, Tell us how the festival came about. Yeah, so the festival in its first iteration um, with creative director Jacob, and that's really where I started. I started as a front-of-house manager back in 2017 and I remember walking into the meat market, which was our festival hub, um, back in my younger days. And really being blown away with the type of art and performance that was happening at that time. And that really ignited something in me. And I knew that that's exactly where I wanted to be. So ever since, I've I've been working with Yurumboy. That sounds incredible. Um, <laughs> it's a massive 10-day festival with over 300 First Nations creatives. So it's going to be huge. Um, and it's happening <laughs> across the city. Um, might be difficult to kind of talk yeah. about specifics, but could you maybe just talk us through some of the different types of events that are happening, um, the types of art that people might be able to see? Absolutely. Yeah, like you said, it's it's an incredibly ambitious festival. You know, it's over 300 First Nations creatives, both locally and nationally. And, you know, for this iteration, now that the borders have opened after, you know, what seemed like a lifetime during COVID... We do have some international artists from Turtle Island, Canada, that'll be joining us. Um, so, you know, there's over 178 shows and performances throughout the 10 days. Um, so incredibly large, but, you know, that is that is an open invitation to the community, our allies, to 
come and see something new. We have, you know, um, we have forms of art across the full artistic breadth of new genres uh, too. You know, we do have a neo-punk cabaret, um, something that, you know, people don't usually hear about. But no, we have our that sounds so cool. <laughs> it is. It is really cool. So we have our, you know, our larger scale um, performances, our shows, which is our five uh, commissions, our year and boy commissions. They're five world premiere shows. We've got, you know, Kamara, Belle Wykes and Carly Shepard. Um, award-winning, you know, theatre practitioners um, at our hub. We have Stone Motherless Cold with um, um, Alluvium at our hub too. We have David Arden at Arts Centre Melbourne. We have Muriel Spiram uh, working at Malthouse. And we have the Walsh family that will be working at 45 downstairs. Um, and... You know, with all the other shows too, we've got a fashion show, we've got critical conversations, we have a drag brunch at Mabu Mabu, we have, um, you know, dance performances at Arts House. Um, oh, there's, it's, it's, it's huge. It's huge. So I really do encourage the community to, you know, visit our website. There's something there for everyone. Have a look and get involved. Absolutely. Um, I did see on your website that there's going to be a citywide blackout with um, Barring Yannabal and a, and a f- live music lineup for the Uncle Archie Roach block party. Um, maybe you can tell us a bit more about that. Absolutely. So Barring Yannabal uh, was created again in its first inception back in 2017, and that translates we all walk the path. So what we really wanted to do was bring our performances out to the streets of Melbourne and engage with people that uh, may not usually engage with, you know, our our shows. So it's really bringing it front and centre. So on Saturday the 6th of May, when, you know, the sun goes down for the first time at night... Uh, we'll light up the city with visual arts, performances, music, and interweaved with that is, you know, two major music programs that's free to everyone. It's the Uncle Archie Block Party at Section 8, and then we have, you know, Philly, who's doing an album launch, who's um, created an incredible lineup of, you know, emerging R&B and hip-hop artists from regional Victoria at the top. That sounds absolutely incredible. Um, it must be really exciting to not only collaborate with First Nations people from across this country, but um, from, you know, as you mentioned earlier, from other parts of the world as, as well. Can you tell us what this has been like? Yeah, it's always an incredible uh journey to work with, you know, international First Nations people. Because even though that we're, you know, quite diverse and we have, you know, our own stories, there is that unity um, and, you know, very similar histories that we've had. So, you know, to have that um, moment of, um, you know, respect and unity through the festival, it's, um, it's a beautiful, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Yep, definitely. And I think that, you know, festivals like this are super important for people to kind of be able to uh, engage with um, First Nations cultures, which as you as you were sort of touching on, it's not always um, 
accessible to people or on people's kind of forefront. So this is yeah. a really, really great way to do it through art, to do it, you know, um, across the board in Nam as well. Um, where can people find out more and get updates as information is released? Yeah, please visit our website. Follow us on socials, Instagram, Facebook. We're always posting about all the events and shows that we have. And we've only got about two weeks until we open. So I really do encourage, you know, our community and our allies to try something new. Definitely. Um, we'll link to all of that in our show notes later today as well, as well as on our socials. So keep an eye out. Um, that's all we have time for this morning, Shireen. But thank you so much for joining us and telling us Bye. about your and boy. It sounds so great. Thank you for having me. So that was Shireen Stewart, the creative lead for Year and Boy Festival, which is happening from the 4th to the 14th of May. Um, be sure to check out what's going on at yearandboy.com.au and follow them on our socials, which are tagged um, on Tuesday Breakfast socials and will also be in our show notes later today. We'll be back with a couple of songs right after this break. Jazz. The Milky Way looks good in the night skies. The stars open a short for my dark eyes. Complex hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. Things need topping up every now and then. More tea, auntie. Thanks, bud. Including your COVID protection. If you're an adult and it's been six months since you caught COVID or had a COVID jab, you can now top up with a free COVID-19 booster. It helps keep you and your mob protected from serious illness from COVID-19. So talk to your doctor or health worker about a free COVID-19 booster or visit health.gov.au forward slash top up to find out more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. We're about to play White Noise by Dancing Water. They're a First Nations act and artist, and that's going to be super, super exciting. So we'll play that, and then right afterwards we'll play Good Company by Kai. This one is White Noise by Dancing Water. Blah. 
to take a life Is that your freedom? If being black and proud to crime that arrests me Don't say you got my back and oppress me Strip us of our strong life And you gave us the churches with an evil plan and a sinister purpose All I hear is white noise All I hear is white light And all I hear is white silence All I hear is white noise Sick and tired of the white light All I see is your violence Your violence that was Minjin-based band Dancing Water, and they bring this new wave of neo-soul punk mixed with black rage, and it's inspired by societal injustices and a drive for global equity. Dancing Water tells those stories through spoken words and those melodies. Fong, we've got an epic song next. What is this next tune? Yeah, so we're going to be playing another track now. This is from Kai, um, who is such a great um, pop R&B singer at the moment, uh, local as well. And just wanted to flag that Kai is going to be headlining uh, an event coming up on the 3rd of June at the Corner Hotel called Groove Tunes. And this is being uh, presented by TB Access. Um, and we'll be speaking with their founder, Dina, later this morning. But we just wanted to play for you one of her tracks. And this is called Good Company. me doing stupid things for you got me jumping through the brakes a fool and i can't even help it at least i'm in good can't keep my cool i'm tripping
3CR Community Radio, 855am. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. We just heard from Kai with their track, Good Company. We're now joined by Judith Peppard, who is a fellow 3CR producer and presenter who is currently attending the 2023 Harm Reduction International Conference held here in Nam, Melbourne from the 16th to the 19th of April. The theme for this year's conference is Strength in Solidarity. And so we welcome Judith to 3CR Breakfast to share with us her insights into the past few days at this conference. Good morning, Judith. Good morning, and it's great to be on the show this morning. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with us. Um, could you please start by telling us more about what uh, Harm Reduction International Conference is all about? Yes, well, you know, the conference has been going since 1990. This is actually the 27th. I, there was a break probably during COVID, but it's been going a long time, and it. The organization is an NGO, an international NGO, and it uses data and advocacy to promote harm reduction, policy, drug policy reform, and it's also really uh, influenced by rights-based evidence-informed responses to drugs rather than a lot of the mythologies that go around uh, that you hear. So it is based in research. And look, the other group involved here is the Global Commission on Drug Policy, and that was created in 2011 by a group of people from Americas and Europe, including 15 heads of state and government, uh, who also want to inspire a better drug policy globally. But also, I think it's certainly gone beyond now Americas and Europe, because the current chair is uh, Helen Clark, who is former prime minister of New Zealand. Great. So this, um, like you said, it's been going on for many years, and it's all evidence-based and um, a lot of their work is trying to find uh, really, yeah, solutions Better that... Are, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Move beyond prohibition of all drugs and the punitive approach to something that's uh, more respectful of human rights and, and more realistic because really the only people who benefit from prohibition are the people, the criminal people who make money because they're illegal, drugs are illegal. So... A lot of that going on, and thank you, you mentioned strength and solidarity as the theme. And uh, also, I just should say that the groups that have partnered to put on this conference here uh, in Australia, Harm Reduction Victoria, the Australian Injecting and Illicit Drug Users League, so a big place for the voices of people who use drugs in these conferences, the Australasian Society for the Study of HIV, Viral Hepatitis and Sexual Health Medicine, and the International Network on health and hepatitis and substance users. So, you know, quite a variety, four different groups have joined with Harm Reduction International and the Global Commission on Drug Policy. So that's kind of a, a bit of a background. So, but you can imagine, given the people that are there, the mood is absolutely dynamic. And we have people who are, you know, pushing the boundaries, right, you know, a policy from the UN down to Victoria. And we also have people providing services, people who use drugs. And honestly, the interactions are really incredible. There's people who are passionate about what they do and the knowledge they share. 
Yeah, I had a look at the program and it looks quite uh, very comprehensive and, like you said, a wide variety of speakers and panels, both locally and internationally. Are you able to give us a recap of the first two days of the conference and maybe point out some of the uh, main topics of discussion? Sure. Yeah, so at the beginning, like the opening, we had uh, Helen Clark speak from the Commission on Global Commission on Drug Policy, and she said we need to end punitive drug laws. There are drivers incarceration, like people get picked up for possession of drugs and put in jail often, and that happens in Victoria as well. And and she, the evidence she cited, you know, it's rising. The, the use of illegal drugs are rising. The production are rising. So she was really calling for decriminalization, but more important, regulation, that these drugs are regulated and controlled rather than, uh, you know, given over to people, to criminal groups. So that was that was huge. But, of course, right here in Australia, in, at the ACT, um, the ACT government passed legislation decriminalizing small groups of commonly used illicit drugs. And that law, new law, will come into effect in October this year. So uh, Rachel Stephen Smith spoke also at the opening. So here we have, you know, there's a big push. There's a big push to decriminalize drugs and or regulate. So that was a highlight. And certainly Helen Clark was, you know, inspirational. Yesterday was amazing, the, the yesterday morning, because the title was Challenging Systems of Oppression and looked at how drug control is linked to other systems of oppression, racism, imperialism, colonialization, patriarchy, and really just um, amazing speakers there. And the other one that was incredibly moving, and I'm sure people would have been in tears. And it is, it is um, a conference where there are tears. And in fact, there's a corner of the conference, like a remembrance room, where people can go and just remember friends they've lost as a result of a you know, these harsh drug policies. And uh, you can just, and if you go in, there's already names up on the wall on the first day of, you know, friends. I'm feeling kind of weepy even mentioning that. But I'll, I'll just come back. There was a, a talk on the, the drug penalty, and it was quite exciting, uh, you know, context-wise, because Malaysia has, uh, has only weeks ago voted to abolish the mandatory death penalty for serious crimes, and of course that has included drug policy in the past, but we had a speaker from Singapore, and uh, she talked, she read letters from people on death row who were, you know, um, uh, condemned to die, some didn't, but ended up with life imprisonment, but the letters they wrote before death uh, to their family, their friends, many young people, you know, a lot of people who are who struggle, who are poor, and uh, yeah. So I think what we're seeing is uh, the harms that this kind of prohibition policy is doing. I'm sorry, I've gone on a bit there. <laughs> That's part of part of the answer to your question, at least. Yeah, it sounds like it's just um, incredible. These this this conference, there are so many things that are talked about, really important issues, as well. Um, I just wanted to go back to what you were saying about how you know when we're talking about harm reduction, it's not a singular issue. Uh, it right. affects so many other aspects of life, um, and I guess that's why the theme for this year's conference, Strength in Solidarity, makes so much sense. Because, um, like you said, it's linked to things 
to other systems of oppression, to colonisation, to imperialism, to public health. Um, it's not just something that is an isolated issue that it, that impacts, you know, a small subsection of people. It, it, imp- in, it, it impacts all of us in, in many ways. It does. It does. It sure does. And that certainly comes out. And in fact, just relating to colonialism, there was an, one of the papers referred to the fact that in the, I think it was the Philippines, in the Philippines, that there were certain drugs that would have been used, you know, for medicines or different things uh, by people. And all of a sudden they're criminalized because of this international policy. So, I mean, just that's one example of that. But look, the other, I mean, I went to a number of sessions that were just fantastic. And one that really moved me was um, uh, from northern Thailand and a, a person who provides methadone programs to ethnic people's groups in northern Thailand. And just her description of, you know, there's no transport, there's very little in the way of health services, and they get out and they meet people and they bring this to people, you know, the services to people. That was amazing. And also for some um, Aboriginal health services also speaking about using cultures, healing. So, as you know, it's it's people involved in, in treatment or services, and people who are, um, you know, on the ground every day. And what always comes through, again, it's like the love and the care. And it's always, uh, this is my third, I should say, this is my third conference that I've been to. And it, this may be the best. I don't know. It's pretty good. And one person did say to me after the keynote yesterday, where, where they were looking at systems of oppression, he just said, I think I've been to a lot of conferences in my life. That was pretty much up at the top of <laughs> presentation. Anyway, yeah, yeah sorry, I, I, again, I go on. Yeah, is there anything else you'd like to know? Well, I wanted to ask whether there were any uh, priorities specific to so-called Australia that has come out of these discussions. You did mention that uh, there was a talk on um, the ACT and the new policies that they're um, bringing into effect, but were there any other issues that were Australia-specific or even um, yeah, relevant yeah. to Victoria in particular? Well, and that's a great question because that's coming up specifically today. Um, so there was talk about, you know, great news that we had now have a medically supervised injecting centre here in Victoria, North Richmond. And in fact, part of the program, there are site visits to that centre for people interna- who arrived internationally, because there are still countries that don't have such facilities, but there are countries that do. But with regard to today, there's going to be a presentation of research done in France in comparing, and it's done in two cities, Strasbourg and, and in Paris. And uh, what they've done is they've compared people who use a medically supervised injecting center with people who haven't used it and the results. And the results are amazing because, you know, there are less issues, obviously less deaths, it's um, uh, less health concerns, more health support for people. So the results that are scientifically done, controlled study, is providing great support for the centre that exists here in Melbourne and also support for a new one that really is needed in the CBD. I think a lot of people are hoping that that will come about. So that that's a very specific issue that's happening here. Yeah, that will be really interesting um, to to hear all about. Um, I can't help but think about, you know, the way that these issues are communicated here in, in Melbourne. Yes. Um, yep. And, you know, you see mainstream media really jumping on 
you know, a lot of maybe perhaps the myths um, about yeah. certain services like safe injection rooms. Um, do you think that the, the way that these issues are communicated um, has a huge impact on how it's seen within the community? Absolutely. And I really think there's a lot of work needed around education of journalists around um, drug issues in particular, because every, you know, as soon as you see an article in the paper, you see a picture of a syringe, or you see a picture of drugs, or you see a person who's looking not in great shape. That's the, And that's the way people who use drugs are presented. It's not the case. You know, it's just, and and also, but what it all what it does is it kind of reinforces that we need to get rid of these, you know, it reinforces the law enforcement. If we just get rid of them, just prohibition, then we'll all be fine. But in fact, we've had it now for you know, since 1961, easily, and it's been a gross failure. And this is what Helen Clark pointed out at the beginning. So yes, I think we need better informed information from journalism and from the media. They need to go be beyond the sensational and the way they represent people who use drugs and, and the services. And I think that goes a long way to preventing positive policies being brought into place. I mean, it's amazing that the ACT is, you know, they're not regulated, but they are decriminalizing. And I did manage to have a chat yesterday with um, Rachel Stephen-Smith, and I asked her, how did you do it? And she said, well, we have a pretty well-educated, well-informed community in the ACT, but also that a lot of different people got behind it after they found out what was going, you know, they found out the truth about these issues. And, uh, and so when people know, know better, then they are happy to embrace newer policies. And in fact, I also spoke to the person from Singapore who talked about the death penalty. And she talked about, you know, I used to think the same as everybody else. And then I saw this, you know, 19-year-old boy from Malaysia who was on the, on death row for, you know, bringing some heroin into Singapore. And, uh, and then she looked into it more, looked into it more, and she realized, you know, we're being sold a lie often. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and these mm. lies are often, you know, calls for more, like you said, uh, uh, prohibition, criminalization, um, heavier police powers, very top-heavy, quote-unquote, yes. you know, solutions that don't actually uh, help people. And like you said, the real solutions lie in community care yes. and uh, love and l- listening to um, people with lived experience and working alongside them. Absolutely, for sure. And uh, speaking of getting communities involved, I also went to a presentation from a group in Canada, I think from Edmonton and Alberta, and and they've just thrown out all the rules about when someone calls and they need help. Oh, well, do you fit this category or do you fit this category? They just go and they do what the person needs. They need a meal they'll do that. If they need some help, like some clean injecting equipment, they'll bring that. Mm-hmm. They go and they talk to people. And what the, what was I found fascinating about that one is they have a whole community network of people. So if they can't get out, they have other people can go out. And, and so they're really, you know, working to me. And of course, lots and lots of Indigenous people there in that part of, of Canada, well, all over Canada, but particularly are in the areas they're working in. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Well, Judith, that's all we have time for today, but I really wanted to thank you for um, giving us uh, an insight into the Harm Reduction International Conference, what's been talked about and what's coming up today. Uh, So thank you so much for, for coming on our show this morning and speaking to us about these important issues. 
It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much Thank you. for inviting me. <laughs> uh, so we just spoke with uh, Judith, um, who has been attending the 2023 Harm Reduction International Conference held in uh, Melbourne from the 16th to the 19th of April. If you'd like to find out more about the conference, you can go to hr 23hri Global, and there you can find uh, lots of information about the international conference, the history of it, and uh, all the panels and workshops that have been held at this conference uh, so far this year. And make sure you tune into 3CR Breakfast tomorrow for uh, another conference update from Judith. Uh, we'll be back with our discussion with Dina right after this. Three CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how Three CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. I've had a few jobs over the years. None I've really loved. A mate suggested I use my skills to teach. Turns out I only needed to study for under two years. Now I'm in demand in a secure career I love. Come on, kids, gather round. Are you ready? Fast-track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. We're just going to go for uh, go to a quick track before we speak with Dina this morning. So uh, this is a song called Dan Seven and Nanya by Yuna. was a 
excerpt from the song uh, Dan Sevananya by Yuna. If you'd like to listen to the full track, make sure you uh, look into our podcast later this morning. We're really excited to be chatting with Dina, who is the founder of TV Access this morning. Uh, Dina will be speaking to us about uh, what TV Access is all about, as well as the second instalment of Groove Tunes, which is an exciting music event happening on the 3rd of June at the Corner Hotel. Um, And we'll be speaking about how they've created a fully accessible event um, and what to expect from from this year's uh, concert. So thank you so much for joining us this morning, Dina. Thank you for having me. Very excited. Well, could you tell us more about TB Access, uh, what it's all about and how you came to create this company? Yeah, so um, TB is a specialist access consultancy. So we work with uh, anyone under the creative industries umbrella. So that can be theatre, venues, artists, um, anyone sort of that falls under that umbrella. Um, to me, sort of came to fruition uh, many years ago when I was still at university studying uh, entertainment management. Um, and I, I sort of dabbled in quite a bit in the creative industries and I hadn't really found my passion. Um, I am a person with lived experience of disability and I've, I guess I've experienced firsthand the lack of accessibility um, that we have in the industry. And I've had a conversation with a lecturer and she said, you need to find the gap in the industry and fill it. And for me, I guess that was a little bit of a light bulb statement a light bulb moment, sorry, for me, where I'm a person with lived experience. I have my background in entertainment business. Um, and I guess that's where I started TV access to sort of fill that gap uh, in the industry. Yeah, could you talk about this further? How would you describe the current state of live music and entertainment when it comes to accessibility or lack thereof? Um, I think... Look, I, I think it's it's definitely more of a conversation than it was five, six years ago. Um, we are making big steps forward um, and definitely making progress. Uh, I think, you know, like anything, we still have a long way to go um, and I think there's still big opportunity for people to continue to upskill and learn about what accessibility and disability means. Um, but I definitely think we are, you know, making progress. Yeah, and I know that TV Access does consulting work for, uh, you know, events and, and festivals within the industry. Can you tell us more about this type of work that you do? Yeah, so um, we work with a range of, of different events, um, you know, large and small, um, which is something that we're, you know, really proud of. We want to make sure that, Accessibility is accessible to everyone, regardless of the size um, of the festival or event. So, um, some of the consulting work we do, we you know reports. We work with um, events to learn about accessibility. So we run a range of workshops. Um, we do website audits and reports. We 
help people to make their social media more accessible. Um, so there's a range of different things that you can do when it comes to accessibility. It's not just your ramps and your rails, it, it goes beyond that. Yeah, it sounds very comprehensive. Um, so Groove Tunes is an exciting event that's coming up on June 3rd. Can you talk us through the many ways that um, Tibi Access has made this event accessible to all people? Yeah, so um, we have a range of different accessible features uh, at the event. We have Auslan interpreters, we have a lowered bar, uh, we have um, lyric videos as well um, as a sensory space. Um, but we're really excited this year to implement uh, some pack vests, um, which are vests that people who are deaf and hard of hearing can wear that gives them an additional sensory element. So the vests vibrate with the bass of music, um, which is really cool and really exciting. And we're yeah, really excited to have them part of the event. Yeah, that sounds really incredible. Um, and it seems like this, you know, really should be the future of all live music and entertainment events uh, for so that, you know, people are included um, in in these events. Uh, can you talk about who will be performing at Groove Tunes? Yeah, so uh, we have a super exciting uh, lineup this year. Uh, we have... Kai, who is headlining, uh, along with Call Out Sun, Volley K, uh, and we've just announced our two supports, uh, who is Remedy and Betty Forge. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, that's really exciting. Uh, lastly, Dina, can you tell us uh, how you know live music and the events industry can improve when it comes to inclusive practices? Um, you know, personally, what would you like to see more of? I think, like, like I said earlier, accessibility goes beyond the ramps and the rails. There's a lot that an organisation can do uh, to improve their accessibility in terms of, you know, the information that they provide on their website, um, you know, including alt text and image descriptions, captioning on their social media, um, and, and upskilling, you know, seeing people take on training. Um, to understand disability is a really big step forward. Um, and I think that's a really good first step for an organisation to understand accessibility and disability and, you know, make those initial changes to their business. Um, so I think, I think just seeing people make those small changes and showcasing inclusive practices is, is what I really love to see. Yeah, that's great. I think, uh, you know, I see people on social media, just, you know, friends and people that I know using alt text and image descriptions yeah. um, as part of their regular, you know, posting practices. So it, yeah. it definitely seems like it's it's becoming, um, well, people are becoming more aware and it really doesn't take that much effort to, to uh, ensure that, you know, your message is being communicated to everyone. Yeah, not at all. And it's one of those things, it's, I guess, a quick and easy win. It costs nothing. Um, I think people panic when it comes to accessibility, thinking, you know, it's going to cost me so much to put in an accessible bathroom or put in a ramp or a lift um, when, you know, you can start with 
your online accessibility, which is not going to cost you anything, but, you know, 30 more seconds when you're posting. Yeah, definitely. And I guess, you know, like you said, it's about uh, working with uh, people with lived experiences uh, to ensure that what they're doing is um, is appropriate and, yeah, inclusive of everyone. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Dina, uh, about TB Access and about Groove Tunes, which is coming up. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll make sure to direct people to the website to, to find out more. But, yeah, thanks again for joining us on 3CR Breakfast this morning. Well, thank you so much. We were speaking to Dina uh, Basil just now, who is the founder of TB Access, which is an access uh, consultancy specifically for live music and events uh, that also runs workshops for industry professionals and students. For more information on TB, you can go to www.tbaccess.com. Uh, TB is spelled T-I-B-I. And uh, for more uh, info about Groove Tunes, which is the fully accessible, inclusive music event coming up in June, you can head to their Instagram, which is at GrooveTunes.au. Uh, we'll be back with a roundup of today's show right after this message. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Let's give a quick roundup of what we had on today's show. So we had a big show this morning. We started off uh, at 7.15 speaking with Dr. Piper Rod, the branch president from NTE's Deakin branch on their non-union ballot and industrial action happening this Friday. Yeah, we had a recap about... No Bullets in Benalla. This was a recap from the Solidarity Breakfast hosted by Annie McLaughlin and was interviewing Zelda Grimshaw from Wage Peace. Then at 7.40, we spoke with Shireen Stewart, the creative lead for Year and Boy Festival on What's On at the festival from the 4th to the 14th of May across Nam. We had an incredible conversation with Judith, who uh, is currently attending the 2023 Harm Reduction International Conference, which is being held here in Nam uh, until tomorrow, the 19th of April. Uh, and it was great to hear Judith speak to us about all the topics that are being discussed at this, con- um, at this conference, as well as some of the action items that hopefully will um, be implemented in the future. And then to finish uh, the show today, we spoke with Dina, who is the founder of TB Access, uh, and they provide information to 
um, people in the events, live music, entertainment industry about how to uh, ensure that their events are fully accessible and inclusive for people with disabilities. So um, that was, yeah, who we spoke to just now. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast this morning. Remember to check out the podcast later this morning. You can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash Tuesday breakfast. Uh, make sure you tune into 3CR Breakfast tomorrow from 7 a.m. and uh, stay tuned for Accent of Women coming up next. Bye, everyone. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.